Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Amen. Good morning, church. How are we? Awesome. Happy spring break. It's a little quiet in here. Most of our people are on spring break and enjoying themselves, but let's go ahead and dismiss three to fives and six to sevens. Uh, I almost forgot about that. So three to five-year-olds and six and seven-year-olds, y'all can head out to your classes. Uh, For everyone else, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. We're going to be in the book of John, and uh, I'm going to do, hopefully, um, well, I'm going to shoot for covering the most amount of scripture uh, that I've ever done in a single sermon. And so we'll, we'll just see how this goes, all right? Uh, but we are going, going to be covering a lot of scripture today. And uh, the reason for it is because there's a, a small event that's kind of around the corner coming up that you may have heard of before called Easter. Um, and so Easter is, is a big time, all right? Whether you did not have a church background like me, you might think of Easter in terms of uh, eggs and and baskets of candy and you know rabbits or bunnies that break into your house to leave those things there like that's that's kind of your mindset around Easter but maybe for those who who grew up in the church who were raised in the church or or have a lot of experience with church you think more of Easter and what we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ and and the big celebration of that the big party of that and and everyone dressing up you know on that day where you're Easter outfit and take photos as a family and whatnot. And so a lot is kind of hinging around this this single greatest event in all of human history. And so what I wanted to do today as we are kind of ramping up towards Easter um, is is kind of lay out really just the reason for it. And, And a lot of people preach this type of sermon actually on Easter Uh, But rather, what what I hope for us is as we lead up to Easter, that Easter really is actually the kind of aha moment. Like it's it's more of the, oh, this this is what we have heard and is now experiencing on the day of actual Easter. And and really what we're seeing here, and this is why I'm going to look to so much scripture throughout the book of John, is really what we just proclaimed in that last song that we sang, like make my heart believe. Just this idea of of believing Jesus is who he says he is, that he did what he said he did, and that he is actually the Son of God sent from the Father to earth to perform miracles, to do all kinds of uh, amazing things leading up to the ultimate miracle of him dying on the cross and then resurrecting three days later. Uh, All of that was so that we might believe in him. It wasn't just for uh, Jesus to come down and do some amazing miracles and, and have people kind of for a while believe he's some type of like David Blaine or uh, some type of just magical you know, magician who's able to do some, some crazy things. Like, no, there, there were purpose behind all of the things that he was doing that would ultimately lead to them believing in him because that was a big big ordeal and and it is a big ordeal for us today because belief at the end of it determines how you ultimately live your life like there's implications for it in your life and so we're going to talk about that today next week we're going to talk about um, the, the triumphal entry of Jesus and how everyone is celebrating the the Messiah who is here, the one who has come, the one who has been foretold for so long, like they're, they're celebrating his entry and then literally within a few days we'll be crucifying him at the same time. And then again, we will celebrate that on Easter after his death on Good Friday. And why is it Good Friday? So we'll have a Good Friday service at 630 on that Friday here talking about his death. But then ultimately what does it mean that he actually rose? And we'll talk about that on Easter. Like, what does that actually mean? And why is that so important? Why does all of Christianity literally hinge on whether or not Jesus actually rose? So today we're going to be looking at this idea of belief. And, and so again, what I want to do for us with this is, is kind of, if you've seen Christmas Carol, the movie or any of the plays or whatnot, it, you know, 
Scrooge gets visited by, you know, ghosts of Christmas past and Christmas present and Christmas future. And they're essentially just walking him through the story of his life and how he missed certain things and whatnot. And that's kind of what I want to do is be the ghost of Christmas past where I just walk you through. This is where Jesus was here. This is what he did here. This is what he did here. And this is ultimately what he was wanting everyone to see so that they could see it and believe it. And that there's going to be some who believed it and some who didn't. And what happens to the ones who believed and the ones who didn't. So I want you to be able to see that so that again, this isn't just something that we're looking back on and reading. But we're actually entering ourselves into the story and are saying, okay, they were eyewitnesses of this. And not only were they eyewitnesses of this and recorded this. But they're recording it so that we would also read it with eyes and ears to be able to see and hear what happened so that we then have the same opportunity to answer the same question. What do you think about Jesus? What do you think about Jesus? Do you believe or do you not? And so I want you to see these because again, seeing these events that unfold and seeing what Jesus is doing is what allowed for the people to see truly who he was. And that's what I hope for us today. As John 3.16, as you're in John, I'm going to actually have you go to John uh, 9, 10, somewhere around there. <laughs> you just hang out and around John 9 or 10. I'll get there uh, eventually. But John 3.16-18, this is what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. All right, if you've been around Christianity for any time, you know this is one of the biggest verses as far as evangelism goes that everyone hinges everything on. I mean, everyone always goes to John 3.16, especially in the sports world. If it's going to, like if I'm going to plaster a verse in order to share the gospel to anybody and everybody, I'm going here. I'm going John 3.16. I'm going to like write John 3.16 on my football helmet or I'm going to put it, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to put it on a little bag if I own a business and I'm going to send it out so that people look it up to know kind of what is God's entire purpose like of, of the Bible and what he's done with his son Jesus. You're going to go to John 3.16. It, it shows so much in this one verse. First and foremost, for God so love the world, all right? That's showing the heart of God. It's showing the volume of his heart. That's not just for God love the world. It's he so loved the world. I mean, there's amplified love that he has for the world. And because he so loves the world, seeing the world in its state of sin and evil and corruption, God does something about it. So he sends his son, Jesus, that whoever believes in his son, Jesus, will not perish but have eternal life. So, so those are the two destinations, if you will, of everyone that is in the world and the stake of their lives. So Jesus, you've got to do something with Jesus. According to God, you've got to do something with Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, you receive eternal life. If you don't believe in Jesus, you perish. I mean, that's God right out of the gate in John. And if you were to walk through the book of John and just literally highlight the theme of the book, it all hinges on belief. Like everything that Jesus unpacks in his life and everything that he does is so that they would come to a place where they understand and believe that he is who he says he is. So he says that in John 3, 16 through 18. One of the most profound questions Jesus continues to ask the people is just really a simple one. Do you believe? John 6, 6 uh, 63 through 64 puts it this way. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. So right there, he's just saying, God gives life. Your flesh, your body, your life, all of that doesn't matter. It, it, it does not offer any help to whether or not you perish or uh, or have eternal life. The flesh is of no help, no help. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. What, what Jesus is saying, the words that I give, that embody me, who I am, they give spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. All right, this is Jesus. Just, there are some of you who are hearing what I'm saying, who are seeing me, and still don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. 
He goes on down to John 9, 35, and he says this. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? So Jesus is continuing to just ask these questions. What do you believe? Who do you believe in? Because at the end of the day, that, again, is going to be a determining factor of whether or not we receive eternal life or we perish. We perish. And because Jesus is so good and so gracious, he's going to continue to reveal himself, not only through the words that he's preaching and that he's teaching, but also through the miracles and the signs and the wonders that he is performing so that the people have no excuse other than to say, you are the Son of God, and we either disbelieved and rejected it, we suppress that truth, as Romans 1 says. Or we saw that you are the Son of God and the Messiah and the Christ, the sent one, and we believed it. And we trust you for who you are. And we, we, we give our lives to you. We, we live for you. We may not have all the answers, but we, but we see you and we see you in what you're doing and what you're executing in your life and we give our lives to you. And that's important because in giving our lives to him, we actually then receive life. And life abundant, better than anything that we could imagine in and of ourselves. I mean, you see this in John 10 as you come down to verses 7 through 18. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. All right, all right so Jesus right here is just saying that there, there are people who have come before him who are maybe professing to be the prophet, professing to be the Messiah, professing to, to lead them in understanding what life is and life abundant, who are giving them rules. And, and really who he's getting at here are the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. They're the religious leaders of the day. They are the Jews who are considering themselves to be disciples of, of Moses and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and again the people of Israel. But what they've done is they've taken all of the truths that God provided to a people and they've taken those truths and they've literally twisted them in order to execute for themselves power and authority and sovereignty over the people so that they could establish for themselves a comfortable lifestyle in which they live well and no one else does and they then lord it over people to keep them in uh in suppression or in oppression in order for them again to just be seen as the righteous ones that they are even though they truly aren't and you'll see that here in a minute as as we continue to unpack this but jesus is saying what they're doing is they're actually robbing you of life because they're not leading you to the one who actually gives life. The one who is actually the door. The one who is actually the gate in which you enter into in order to then actually find pasture. And to be able to graze and be able to enjoy life under the good shepherd. As he says in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay, my, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I love that because, again, that's Jesus, again, through parable here, through illustration here, is already teaching the Jews, hey, it's not just for the Jews. All right, I've got other sheep that are of another fold that I'm going to bring into our fold. Okay, so it's not just the, the bloodline here of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This is also others that I am their shepherd. So there will be one flock 
in one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. I mean, we're going to be talking about that again over the next three weeks because that is everything that is going on around Easter and around Passover is Jesus laying down his life and then taking it up again. No one has that authority if you are not God. All right? Like if you're not God, you don't get to die and then come back to life on your own. Like you don't get to just declare that. That I'm I'm going to die, I'm going to lay my life down, and then I'm going to take my life back up again. I'm going to get that heartbeat going again. You don't get to do that if you're not God. So what Jesus is actually doing here amongst his peers is he is declaring to them I'm not just a man. I'm actually God. Which is why they kill him. We'll see that in the coming weeks. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Hold on to that idea of just authority there because that's always going to be attached to anyone who considers themselves Lord. Is whether or not you have authority. Whether or not you have power. Whether or not you have influence. That's going to come into play here in a question that I'm going to ask at the end. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. He goes on down into John 10, through 30. Listen to it. Again, I'm just walking you through this story. At the time the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. All right, so, so Jesus has been performing some miracles. He's just healed a blind man back in John chapter 9. And so the news of this blind man being healed is spreading. And these Jews are wondering. All right, stop keeping us in suspense. If you're the Messiah, if you are Christ, not just Jesus, if you're Christ. Like Christ is not his last name. It's a title. All right. It is Jesus, the chosen one, Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the anointed one, Jesus, the God man. Like that's what they're looking for here for here. Are you the Christ? If you are, tell us plainly, please. Tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them. I told you. I, I've already told you. And again, you do not believe. You do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. No one has declared this up until this point. In, in recorded human history, no one has, other than maybe an unrecorded person who was crazy, who comes in and is like, I'm the Messiah, the chosen one, everyone's been looking for, they didn't prove to be. Jesus is stepping up here and in this moment literally saying, I'm about to tell you something that you might not be able to understand, barring I give you eternal life to understand. I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. What he's just relayed before that is, I have all authority. Where does it come from? It comes from my Father. It comes from my Father. Because we are one, because we are united, and this is where, again, you're not going to see Trinity, the Word, in the Bible, but you're going to see implications of a Trinitarian God that we serve when it comes to a Father, a Holy Spirit, and a Son, in which they are God. So the Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. They are distinct. They are separate. However, they are equal, and they are one. They are God. They are united. 
And that's exactly what Jesus is declaring here. Is he saying, I'm not just someone who is performing some some miraculous things on behalf of someone else. I actually am God who is performing this miracle. The reason why the blind man is no longer blind is because I'm God and I have authority over his blindness. I have authority over illnesses and I'm allowed to be able to tell those illnesses they can no longer ill somebody. That's what Jesus is saying here. Will you tell us plainly? And he's saying, I'm not only telling you with my words, I'm showing you with my actions. It goes on down into John 10, 36. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. Like he's just, he's almost playing the role of a lawyer here. Jesus defending his case. He's saying, if I'm not God, then don't believe me. But believe on account of the works that I do, that I am actually from the Father. That I actually am God. Like, don't just take my word for it, but take my actions for it as well. And so he's just laying this out for them constantly. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. That you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And that's one thing that, that, that I love here that Jesus allows us to wrestle with and work through is the first time that we've ever heard about Jesus. And if it didn't land on us and it didn't help us in that moment, just go, yeah, that all makes sense. Absolutely. If it doesn't land there at first, he gives us space. To be able to explore the work that he's done. And not only the work that he's done, but the eyewitness testimonies. That's what the scriptures are, okay? They're eyewitness testimonies of these apostles, these disciples who were with Jesus for three years. And they're just writing down everything that they've experienced with him. They're saying, this is not only what he taught, but this is what he's done. And that's actually, one, again, one of the reasons that right after Easter, we're going to begin walking through the book of Luke is because if you look at the, the first couple of lines of the book of Luke, Luke's whole purpose for writing the book is so that there's certainty and assurance of faith. That as I lay out for you, just literally an articulated timeline of Jesus' birth, his lineage, all the way to his death and his resurrection, and looking at all the works in his life, everything that he accomplished, it's so that you would have certainty and assurance of faith that he is who he says he is, and that he did what he said he did, and that we can go to sleep at night knowing that when we believe in him, we receive eternal life, and we will never perish. That's what Jesus is allowing us to do here. Understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And then he works up to his greatest miracle that he's accomplished up to this point. All right, he goes from kind of doing some things that you can watch on like True TV if you've ever seen like um, the Carbonaro effect or if you've seen David Blaine or any of those things where they're like, they'll turn things into other things and they're kind of like distracting you over here and all of a sudden there's something over here. Like his first miracle at a wedding, he turns water into wine. All right. He turns water into wine. And, and, and again, there's, there's a ton of, I don't have enough time to dive into the illustration of that and the symbolism of that. But it's a miracle, okay? It's a miracle that Jesus accomplishes. And they start asking questions. How can this guy turn water into wine? And he's like, it's not time yet, all right? I'm working up to it. And there would be multiple times where he would do miraculous things and the disciples are like, we want to go gossip this. We want to go tell everyone about this thing that you're doing. And he's saying, don't do that yet. Like, don't tell them I'm the Messiah because I'm working myself up so that you have the full picture of my power and authority so that as you reason and as you wrestle with the truths of Jesus and what he's done and what he's executed, you can get the full picture of his authority to be Lord. To be Lord. 
Which means he has all authority, he has all power, and he has all influence to do as he pleases, which is always good for those who believe in him. And so he's working himself up to his greatest miracle to this point. Because again, I believe his greatest miracle is dying and then resurrecting himself. That's his greatest miracle. And then that miracle continues to literally play out every single time a non-believer becomes a believer. It's a miracle of God that he puts you to death and raises you to a new life. That is the greatest miracle you will personally ever experience yourself. That God does in your life. But we see this worked out in the death of Lazarus. So John 11, looking at verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, the illness does not lead to death. Which is interesting because we know that Lazarus dies. All right? the, the illness does lead to his death. But instead, Jesus said, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. How is the Son of God going to be glorified through the death of Lazarus? Well, the only way that he can be glorified through the death of Lazarus is if he conquers the death of Lazarus. If he, he turns the death into life, the water into wine. He changes something here for the state of a man who is dead. He brings him back to life. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So that people will see the Son of God, Jesus Christ, as the chosen one, as the Messiah. So, Jesus essentially lets Lazarus die. And you're going to see that here. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. In the place where he was. Then after this he said to his disciples. Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him. Rabbi the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? The reason why they wanted to stone him. Was because when he healed that blind man. In chapter 9. He then basically proclaims that he is God. And they think that's blasphemy. Alright. Which actually is true. Alright. If you claim to be God and you're not. That's blasphemy. And that's what Jesus is being accused of. So they tried to stone him there in that moment. Then after he said, that said this to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying, these things to, after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly. Again, I just love that. I just love that Jesus knows we're sheep. All right, Sheep tend to be dumb. And he's just like, I, just, I need to speak plainly to you here for a minute. So he speaks to them plainly. Lazarus has died. And again, here, why does he stay two days later? Why does he allow Lazarus, whom he loves, to die? And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. What he's after here in about to perform this incredible miracle with Lazarus is for the belief of his friends, of his family, of the Jews that are surrounding. It's for their belief. So let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Which is also just so funny because the disciples just sometimes say things and have no idea what they're saying. But that's what Thomas the twin is saying here. Down in verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Four days, all right? It, this, this is him making sure that Lazarus is dead, dead, okay? Like it's, it, he doesn't want them to have any opportunity to say, 
Well, he was just like incapacitated for a little while. Or like maybe he was just sick. And maybe he was just like sleeping it off for, you know, a couple of days. Like, no, he's like, I'm going to make sure that he's dead, dead. All right, four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them and concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, this is not her casting blame on Jesus. For not being there on time. All right? This is actually revealing of her faith and her trust in Jesus' power and authority, as she says in the next verse. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Uh, which I love that this is in there because this is showing that Martha. Uh, that she's been paying attention in class. All right, she, She's been listening to the teachings of Jesus and taking them to heart. Her faith is more informed than honestly a lot of the Pharisees and Sadducees who say there's no resurrection. All right, She understands and believes that there is a resurrection and that one day all who die that believe in Jesus will be resurrected with him. Now they haven't seen that up to this point. They haven't seen that yet. And, and so they're, they're, they're understanding now that there's a faith in something to come that's going to be great for them. That's good news for them. And that's what Martha is putting her, her faith in and her trust in. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection in the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And again here, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Again, this is Jesus here with the gospel proclamation. Jesus is saying that, there's, that, that there is life for both those who have physically died and for those who are still alive. There is a resurrection of the dead, but there is also a resurrection of those who are spiritually dead. And I am that resurrection and life. If you believe in me, you are resurrected to life, both now and in the future. And she said to him, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, that you are the Son of God who is coming into the world. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. Now, remember, again, this is Mary who will eventually anoint Jesus' feet with expensive ointment and, and wipe his feet with her hair. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Again, this is revealing of her faith, not blame, her faith. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then the shortest verse in all of scripture, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Now, one thing to mention here, and oftentimes when preaching on this passage, I, I preach on as this as the main point, especially at funerals. At this point, like, doesn't Jesus know what he's going to do? Like, like he knows that he's about to resurrect Lazarus, right? Like, he, he knows that he's about to turn this funeral into an actual celebration of life ceremony. Like he's actually about to bring Lazarus. So it's going to go from mourning and grieving and funeral to uh, like a party and celebration. And he who was dead is now alive. Like it's going to be a ceremony and a reception rather than a, a funeral and grieving and mourning. So why then does Jesus weep? When he knows what he's about to do. Like why doesn't he just run to each person in that moment and say stop crying. 
Stop weeping. Stop mourning. Because what I think Jesus does here, and this is good for us to hear, especially based on what Josh taught last week, when you're thrown in the furnace of trials and tribulations and, and, and uh, just terrible circumstances in your life, when you're suffering, when you're dealing with things that are very difficult for you to deal with. Like we all know truth that in the end, Jesus wins. Like we know in the end, he resurrects everything to life. We know that he makes all things new and that he restores all things. But what he also does is he enters into your current state of suffering and he mourns with you. He weeps with you. He ministers to you in that moment, even though he knows he's going to resurrect it one day. He's going to make it all new. He, he never tells you in the moment of your suffering that you're stupid for suffering. He doesn't do that. But instead, what he does is he steps into our moments of suffering and he holds us. Like that's something that we get to experience in our world and in our lives that angels don't get to know. That they don't get to experience. That's something that only the redeemed get. Is to experience this side of Christ. That enters into our suffering. And that comforts us in that place. That holds us. That cherishes us in that moment. Not only does this reveal Jesus' care for us. And our grieving and pain. But it also reveals Jesus' hatred. Towards death. And the cause of their grief. And I think that's what he's going to get into. And I think that. I think there's even a moment here, and this is totally conjecture. I'm not saying that this is, is straight from the Scriptures. But I think there's even a moment here of Jesus weeping in the foreshadowing of what He knows that He's about to go and experience Himself in order to take this away from us. Like, this is the beginning of His weeping and His anxiety of what He's about to enter into. Like, I know that we deal with anxiety but I don't think we've dealt with anxiety to the level of Jesus sweating blood. And he's about to enter into that in order to literally, on both sides of the pendulum, he who represents ultimate life and life abundant is also going to enter into the deepest level of pain and grief and mourning and anxiety in order to take that from us as well. Like Jesus fulfills for us all things. So that when we do call on him in our times of suffering, he's able to come in and say, I know. I know. I know. And I'm here for you. I'm here for you. I'm ministering to you as you go through this then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Sound familiar? Like to any other stories that might be coming up in a couple of weeks? Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God. All right, there's a great point to be made here. Again, Martha nailed it on the, there will be a resurrection. Like she'd been paying attention in class. And then there's also moments where our theology meets the road. And we're walking into a situation and we're like, I don't know if I believe. Help my unbelief. Like I, I don't know what you're doing here. Like, I know that there will be a day of judgment. We will all be resurrected, and that's going to be great. But what are you doing? He's dead. Like, we're in a funeral right now. Like, you don't just bring dead people back to life. And Jesus is like, no, that's exactly, that's exactly what I do. I bring dead people back to life. And she's not really following along here with Jesus and is nervous that it's going to stink here in a minute. So they took away the stone in verse 41 and Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. 
Again, Jesus is taking every opportunity to put himself on display so that those around him might believe. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Now why did Jesus yell? Like the dead can't hear, they're dead. Right? Jesus wants those present to see that God's voice has the power and authority to raise the dead. R.C. Sproul puts it this way, The divine call that gives life to the dead vividly illustrates God's call to the spiritually dead that raises them to spiritual life, enabling them both to hear the shepherd's voice and to follow him. This event wasn't just for Lazarus to come back from the dead physically, but also for all those who were present to come back from the dead spiritually. Like that's what's going on in this moment. He said this, I said this on account of the people standing around that they might believe So Jesus raising a man from the dead is his ultimate climax in his signs and wonders in his ministry. Again, from turning water into wine, Jesus amplified his miracles and wonders. He controlled the weather. He read minds. He healed those who were sick. He gave sight to a blind man. He multiplied food. All of these miracles were to display the fact that Jesus is not just a good prophet. He's not just a good man. He's not just a good teacher. Like, most of our religions that are out there agree on those things. He's a good prophet. He's a good man. He's a good teacher. He was a good family member. He was a good carpenter. But he said these things and revealed these things to show that he is a good God. That he is God himself. In the person of Jesus Christ. This is Jesus revealing to us, I'm sovereign. And not like in control of a region or a state, but I am the sovereign. I am the Lord of lords. I am the King of kings. That nobody is beyond his jurisdiction. Jesus is Lord. And remember, Jesus is after their belief in him. And so we see in John eleven forty five through 48, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Like, that's just a moment to praise God. Like, that's, that, that's part of the purpose of our church is, is to put on display all that Jesus has done so that some might believe. And in here, they had the chance of many believing in Jesus. That he is who he says he is and that he did what he said he did. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So they're at a crisis here. All right, why would the Romans be upset? Because their belief and their system is Caesar is Lord. All right, literal trans, like that's what they say Caesar is Lord. So for Christians to come onto the scene and begin declaring, no, 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 Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. Well, that's going against the Roman law. Like, that's going against Roman philosophy. That's going against Roman establishment and government. Like, that's going against everything that that Rome stands for. And at this time, Bethany and Jerusalem and Israel is under Roman rule. And so to go against Caesar as Lord is to then have Rome step in, and they're not only going to step in, but they're going to remove anyone who's in power who has let this thing go awry. And so you've got these Jewish leaders, these Pharisees and Sadducees who are essentially saying our livelihoods are at stake here if Jesus keeps doing what he's doing. If people keep believing in Jesus, they're going to be turning from from giving to us and and helping us and doing what we need. They're going to move towards Jesus' team and that's not good for us. Our lives are at stake. Rome's going to come and kill us if this is continuing to happen here. 
And so they're at a crossroad where they have a decision to make. Do we continue on trying to save our lives and forfeit our soul? Or do we forfeit our lives in order to save our souls? Do we disbelieve and distrust Jesus and go anti-Him in order to continue with Caesar as Lord and we get to keep our temporal pleasures and our lives that we've built for us, but we perish for eternity? Or do we jump over here and we go, Jesus is Lord, and we're going to probably be put to death because that's how it's been going for anybody or that's how it's about to go for anybody who declares Jesus is Lord. They're at a crossroad. And it's not as messy for us in our current culture. Like us declaring Jesus is Lord does not have our government stepping on and dragging us out of our homes and crucifying us and putting us on stakes and then putting us at the entrance to the city. Because that's what they did with the early Christians. They said, if you're going to come into this Roman-ruled city and you're proclaiming Jesus Lord, we're going to make an example out of you so that those who do come in and establish lives here, they're going to declare Caesar as Lord. You've got a crossroad here that you've got to make. And unfortunately, these Pharisees did not make the correct choice. And Jesus had some words for them in Matthew 23, 27 through 28. He says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You see, I think that's, that idea of whitewashed tombs in our culture, just, just remove whitewashed tombs and, and enter in the American dream. The pursuit of the American dream. Where we look on the outside like we have it all together. You know, as our stats give us, you know, you, you, you're, you're upper middle class, you've got a family with two and a half kids, I don't know how you have the half, but that's the average out there. You've got the dog, you've got the picket fence, you've got the 401k, you've got, you got all those external things that, that in some way provide you a level of comfort like it was providing for these Pharisees and Sadducees, these Jews who do not believe. And at the end of the day, Jesus says it's, it's a whitewashed tomb. On the outside, you look alive. On the inside, you're dead. And what he's showing us here is that there's hope for those who are spiritually dead on the inside. There's hope because he's come in and he's just put on display. I have authority over death. Not only physically, but I have it spiritually. I have all authority to be able to come in and make someone who is dead alive. He says this in Romans 8, 10 through 11. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin... The Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. This is, this is a beautiful win-win that we get as believers. Like those who believe in Jesus, it's not just that you're the, the, the opposite, all right? If you're looking at people who don't believe as physically alive but spiritually dead, most of the time people then look at believers as physically dead, like, you're, you're, like our bodies are breaking down. You're getting older, you're getting more wrinkles, you're, you're dying, all right? I didn't know if you know that. Like when you're born, you start dying, okay? Like that's, that's life, all right? Physically dead, but because we believe in Jesus and he's given us the Spirit of Christ in us, we're spiritually alive. But what he's also telling us here is that not only, yes, you're, you're physically dead, but I'm going to eventually make you physically alive. I'm going to give you a resurrected body as well. 
So those over here who are physically alive and spiritually dead are actually eventually going to become physically dead and spiritually dead. So the question you've got in front of you is, do I want to end up physically dead and spiritually dead, or do I want to end up physically alive and spiritually alive? And the way you get to one or the other is simply asking the question, what do you think about Jesus? Is he the Son of God? Is he, as John 3.16 shared with us, sent by God as the Son of God to lay his life down and then take it up again in order to remove your sins and grant you new life in him? Where do we land with that? God is not in the business of just making bad people good. He's making dead people alive. And I think that that really has implications for us because if we view Christianity as just an idea for bad people to, to become good or bad people to just get better, like that, that's, just, that's just morality. I mean, if you were to live life that way, everybody's living life that way. Everyone picks a political party because they believe it's going to make them better and make their culture and their society better. Everyone picks a career because they think it's going to make their home life better, make their 401k better, make their retirement better. Everyone does it kind of for those reasons. It, it, it makes my existence better. And at the end of the day, Jesus is not concerned with our temporal existence and whether or not it gets better. What he's ultimately after is our eternal existence and not whether it gets better, but whether or not it's alive. John 10, that I might have life and life abundantly. Like that's what Jesus is after. He's not just after you for 40, 50 years to just have ease and comfort and good things happen and blessings and extra at the end of the month and whatever it might look like. He's He's after you having life and life abundantly. And the only way that that happens is by, yes, while we are physically dead right now, in the process of dying, we are spiritually alive in Christ. And that that spiritual aliveness that we have in Christ is impacting everything that we possibly do how we relate to our spouses, how we relate to our kids, how we relate to our coworkers, how we relate to our church members. It's all driven by the Spirit of Christ that dwells in us that breathes life out. So it's not breathing out death. It's not literally giving death to other people. It's not belittling them. It's not sinning against them. It's not tearing them down. It's not destroying them. It's not robbing from them. It's not doing all the things that, that bring about pain and hurt, but rather is about edifying and encouraging. And it only comes from Christ in us who makes us, as Romans 8 says, spiritually alive. Do you believe this? That's Jesus' question. Who do you say that I am? He asks his disciples that multiple times. The way he phrases it to Peter after Peter, and this is a post-resurrection sermon, we all know Peter messes it up at the cross. All right, Peter denies Jesus three times. Which is comforting for us because we, we deny Jesus. All right, whether you're like, no, I don't. It's like, no, you, with your actions, just like Jesus pulls this into not only just your words, but your actions. Your words, you might say, Lord, Lord, but your actions speak otherwise. That's a denial of Jesus. But even in our denial of Jesus, Jesus, as he resurrects, he then comes back to Peter and he says, Peter, three times, do you love me? Peter says, yes, I love you. Jesus asks him again, do you, do you love me? Yes, Jesus, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Like he's allowing Peter the opportunity in that moment to right the wrong 
of his denials by confessing his love. And what we have the opportunity to do every single day is the same thing. Those moments, that's the reason why we have confession in here is because it's not just so that on a Sunday you can come and feel like this is a weird kind of Catholic thing that they do. No, no, no. It's not a Catholic thing that was just adopted by them. Confession is a biblical thing that on a daily basis we're coming to the Lord and we're saying, I, I, really, I disbelieved you here. And he says, do you believe me? Yes, I believe you. I'm your sheep. I hear your voice. I believe you. I know you. I know who you are. He says, okay. Okay. I already saved you. I already forgave you. I'm going to continue working this out with you so that the next time that this happens again, you have an opportunity to believe me again. You have an opportunity to walk with me again, to walk in step with my spirit. So keep confessing where you disbelieve. Like Martha, we can't roll this stone back. Why are you disbelieving, Martha? You just believe me over here. Why can't you believe me right now? Jesus coming to heal Darius' daughter. Well, Lord, if you can, will you? What do you mean, if I can? Absolutely, I can heal her. I can calm storms. I can tell, like, tornadoes to stop. I can, I can do anything I want. I have all authority. I'm Lord. Well, okay, if you can. No, I can. Okay, well, help my unbelief then. Every day, we have the opportunity to believe Jesus is who he says he is, and we also have the opportunity in that moment to ask for help with our disbelief. That's how good and gracious God is to us. That's how good and gracious Jesus is to us. That he says back in, I don't remember, I read so much. It's either 9 or chapter 10. He said, no one can snatch me out of my hand. So I believe. I believe Jesus. There's days where I don't. No one can snatch me out of his hand. He's holding me. He's holding me. And that allows me to come back again and say, you know, I do believe. I do believe. And our belief in him is not based on the quality of our belief in him. It's based on the quality of our Savior. And he's helping us with that belief. Constantly, he's helping us with that belief. And it's changing us and it's transforming us every single day. So a good thing to do is every day asking yourself the question, do I believe in Jesus? Well, then I'm going to believe him with my life today, with my finances today, with my anxiety today, with my illness today. I'm going to believe him with how I relate with my kids today in frustration and in celebration. Like I'm going to believe him with my friends that I'm walking through with a, a tough situation right now that I don't know how to give them wisdom or advice, but I'm going to believe Jesus and I'm going to believe that he's going to help me with the words that I share or with the words that I speak. I'm going to believe him. Because he is my shepherd and I am his sheep. And I know his voice. And I want to follow him and I want to trust him. Do you believe? As we ramp up to Easter, that's the question that we're going to keep asking. Do you believe? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have reveal to us through your written word the beauty of your son Jesus and that this is a word that comes from eyewitnesses who are around Jesus who are followers of him who saw the miracles that he performed who saw him raise Lazarus from the dead who saw Jesus himself raise from the dead we're reading their eyewitness account and just as they are witnessing it with their own eyes and their ears and they're having to wrestle with this question like is is Jesus legit is he who he says he is father you are entering into that question and you are providing for us faith to stand and believe just as Jesus stood at the tomb Lazarus had no ability in and of himself to get up and walk out. But Jesus yelled at him, Lazarus, get up and walk. And he's doing the same thing for us who are spiritually dead to stand up, walk, and believe in him. And so, Father, we ask that for each person in this room that you grant us that faith and that belief to be able to say, I believe, I believe. And then to take up our cross and follow you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.
As we come to this time of communion, Mark 8, 34 says this, In calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus says this to them before he's actually gone and took his own cross. And so they kind of really didn't understand yet like what that means. Now they understand the term crucifixion because that was again the Romans capital punishment for death was crucifixion. And it's the most horrific death you could possibly ever experience because you're typically hanging on a cross for a couple of weeks and you die by asphyxiation rather than the wounds that you take on. It, it's, it's gruesome. And so here they're kind of thinking like that doesn't sound that great to take up our cross daily and follow you. But what Jesus is really getting at here is the greatest thing you could possibly do is lay down your life. And that means all that comes with it. He threw out some, some crazy terminology throughout his ministry where he's like, it's better for you to hate your father and your mother than to hate me, essentially. It's better for you to remove yourself from those situations in order to come and follow me. Like, what he's saying is, is, is don't actually hate your father and mother. Like, that goes against the Ten Commandments. What he is actually saying is, I should be your greatest treasure. So that it almost appears like you hate your father and mother. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Are you willing to forfeit your life? And the, the irony of the scriptures is when you actually forfeit your life and you get Christ, you then actually get the greatest life you could have ever imagined. Like that's the irony of it. We think we're losing something. When in fact we're gaining everything. And it's only on the backside that you actually realize everything that you thought you lost as Paul says, becomes rubbish. Which I love. It's my, Greek, my favorite Greek term. It's dung. That's, that's what he considers it. So when you're like walking around and you see some hor or horse poop. Uh, that's Tennessee, alright? When you see some dog poop out on the sidewalk somewhere, just remember, like, that's my former life. That's, that's everything I gave up in order to receive Jesus. I consider it like this. Rubbish. No benefit whatsoever. That I may gain Christ and the power of his resurrection. That I may share in his sufferings. That I may know him intimately. Like that's what we're getting when we take up our cross daily and follow him. And it's foreshadowing him taking up his cross in order to get us there. In order to get us there. That he lays down his life. And that's what believers celebrate at communion. That's why it is not for non-believers. It is a celebration of what you believe, what you ultimately understand in Jesus, what He has accomplished for you. Like there's nothing, there's, there's nothing, we order it off of Amazon. There's nothing like miraculous happening in those little cups back there. What's miraculously happening is what it symbolizes and illustrates of Jesus breaking His body and shedding His blood, laying His life down that's on His authority so that He can then take upon His own authority to raise His life again. So that in all of that, He with His authority is taking all of your sin and all of your mess and He's placing it on Himself and allowing the wrath of God to be poured out to remove all of it. Once and for all. To remove all of it. Everything that made you spiritually dead. Everything that is making you physically dead. All of those things that are bringing about death. He kills it through death. Which is why death loses its sting. Because if death can actually be resurrected. Then death has no sting anymore. Has no fear anymore. There can actually be life afterwards. So Jesus calls us to do this. To follow in him as he has illustrated for us. And as he has gone before us to do. And so I'm going to have you go ahead and stand. If you don't have the elements, you can go ahead and go back and grab them.
And I know we usually read 1 Corinthians 11, but this time I'm just going to read this again from Romans. Actually, I'm going to read two passages. I'm going to read the Mark 8 again and then the Romans. It's all right. We're already late. So, Mark 8, 34. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Jesus took this cross upon himself to actually lose his life and, and all that he left heaven to come. Like he, he gave it up in order to come and die and represent us as sinners so that we might then receive heaven and righteousness and eternal life with him. He did it through the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood, taking up his cross. He will not ask you to do anything that he has not already done. And that's what we celebrate. That's the kind of Lord that we serve. When we say Jesus is Lord, it's not some distant Caesar on a throne, everyone serving him. It's the one who got down in the muck and the mire himself and took upon himself all of our pain, all of our grief, all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our anxiety, all of those things in order to put it to death and then put it to death. So that we would have life and life abundant. That's what we celebrate in communion. So let's partake now and we'll continue on in worship. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at infothedistrict.church?